judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Greetings from Arizona. Good afternoon, Christ the King Anglican Church in Toronto and all of you that are on, on Zoom on this third Sunday of Lent. And I also want to say Happy Persian New Year to, um, to all among us who are of Persian background. Gary and I are in Arizona until the end of the month, and then we will be driving across the continent to uh, uh, return and, and be among you in Toronto. During our time here on Sunday mornings, I've been attending um, a sister church here in Arizona, uh, called Living Faith Anglican Church. Um, but on Sunday afternoons, Gary and I have been tuning in by Zoom to your service uh, at Wycliffe College. I want to thank Glenn for the chance to preach in the Matthew series. We are continuing in Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And our text today that Patsy uh, read for us, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. I encourage you to have it open um, uh, while we go through this passage. Now, when Glenn begins a sermon, he usually starts with a translation of the passage. And I'm not gonna do that today, but I have prepared a paraphrase of the passage, but I'm going to share that with you at the end. Um, so after we've looked at the passage together. And uh, so when, when I get to that point, uh, you'll know that we're, we're close to the end. I like to give my sermons a title and my title uh, today is Jesus and Judgment. Now, what do you think of when I say the word judgment? Many things may come to mind. Um, I thought of four. First, you might think of feeling judged by someone with a judgmental attitude, somebody who has prejudged you and therefore has a prejudice against you. Secondly, you might think of the idea of using good judgment in making a decision or showing bad judgment in life choices. Uh, the Bible calls good judgment wisdom and bad judgment folly. And you might know that the Bible has a lot to say about wisdom and folly. A third thing that might come to mind is the image of a jury or judge in a court of law pronouncing their judgment, guilty or not guilty. And fourthly, you might think of the final judgment, judgment day, when Jesus returns in glory. 
what is it that we say each week in the creed? We, we just said it now. Uh, when we say we believe in Jesus Christ, among other things, we say he will come again to judge the living and the dead. As we look at our text today from Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll be touching on all four of these ways of understanding the word judgment uh, that I just mentioned. In this passage, Jesus teaches on the wrong and right exercise of our judgment in our relationships with one another. Verses one and two, are an exhortation and warning about the wrong use of our judgment. And verses three to six are instruction on the right use of it. So looking first um, at uh, verses one and two, the exhortation comes right off the top, judge not, that is, do not judge. This is a verse that has been much misunderstood and misappropriated. It sounds so simple, so all-encompassing, like you are just not to use your capacity to judge at all. Well, if you think about this for very long, uh, it's obvious that this, this is not a good idea. Um, the use of our capacity to judge is something like the use of power or money in this way. Just because power and money can be misused and abused does not mean the answer is powerlessness or poverty. Similarly, just because we can misuse or abuse our capacity to judge does not mean the answer is to not use this God-given capacity. But Jesus is clearly forbid, forbidding something here. Uh, I claim Jesus is not forbidding the use of our capacity to judge, even in our relationships with others, as we'll see later in our passage. But the rest of verses one and two give the context for what Jesus is forbidding. Judge not that you be not judged. Judged by whom? Not so much by the other person, but by Jesus himself. Jesus is forbidding us from usurping his judgment. We are not in thought, word, or deed to take his place and do what only he has the qualification and authority to do. Pronounce judgment on a person. Jesus is the only fully qualified, completely clear-sighted judge of a person. We are not and can never be. If we play God in judging another person, Jesus will play us in judging us. The first part of verse 2 says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. This evokes the image of a judge in a courtroom with their knowledge of the law and the authority vested in them by the legal system, making their pronouncement or their official 
announcement of their judgment. This verse is saying, if you act like you are the judge in place of God, prepare to be judged by God. Even actual court justices in our legal system are meant to do their work under God, not in place of God. No one is above the law. The second part of verse 2, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. There's a couple of ways uh, to understand this word measure in the New Testament. It could be speaking about uh, a dry measure, a volumetric measure, like a, a cup or a bushel basket, or it could be talking about a length measure, like a meter stick or a tape measure. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm going to go with the, the length measure image. And so the picture is of um, uh, using a length measure to measure the stature of, of another person. So if we take our measuring tape and measure another person and, um, and determine that they don't measure up, the verse is saying it will be measured to you. God will take that measuring tape and measure us and point out that we also do not measure up. So that's Jesus' exhortation and warning about the wrong use of our judgment. We are not to stand in his place in judging one another. But you may be wondering, where do you draw the line between appropriate judgment in relation to another person and playing God in judging that person? To explore this question, I want to share a story. In my early 20s, before I met Gary, I had a boyfriend. And he was a great guy, intelligent, creative, fun, and affectionate. But one day I said something that made him jealous and really angry. He threw his leather jacket against the wall so hard that the heavy uh, zipper uh, on the jacket left a permanent dent in the wall. Now, I'm sure he apologized for this. I don't remember all the details. But this I know. Despite all his other good qualities, that incident resulted in my deciding I should not marry him. And before long, the relationship ended. Now, that was surely an exercise of my judgment in relation to this man. I judged him not a good choice for a husband, at least not at that time. But just as surely, I'm not a perfect person either, and I have done rash things in anger also. So was I wrong to judge him as I did? I hope you'll agree that it was not wrong to judge this man not a good choice for a husband if, as this incident revealed, he was capable of violence when angry. It is not judgmentalism, but rather good judgment to not 
drive with someone susceptible to road rage or to marry someone susceptible to domestic violence. So where do we cross the line and start playing God? We cross the line when we condemn a person, write them off as though they were unredeemable or unworthy of mercy or forgiveness. I may have judged this man not a good choice for a husband based on the risk of domestic violence that existed when he was my boyfriend over 30 years ago. But this is not the same as writing him off. In fact, my former boyfriend had alcoholic parents. And shortly after we broke up, he started attending meetings for adult children of alcoholics. Such meetings may have helped him understand the reasons for his volatile temper and deal with his anger slash violence issues and become an emotionally more healthy person capable of being a good husband. I lost touch with him long ago, but it is my prayer that he did marry and that he is a good husband today. Let's move on now to look at verses three to six and Jesus' instruction in the right use of our judgment. Here the passage develops the metaphor of sight for the exercise of our judgment. How clearly do you see is about how qualified are you to judge? Verse three uh, introduces the idea of bias in judgment. Verse three, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? This, uh, this verse and, and the couple that follow it are like a mini parable. And in this parable, one person's sight is decidedly compromised. There's a log blocking their vision, yet they take no notice of this fact. Uh, and rather they, they focus on the speck in another person's eye. The log in the eye of the first person is their bias. It's affecting their judgment in ways of which they take no notice. And with their unacknowledged, severely impaired judgment, they are nevertheless prejudging in their thoughts a lesser issue in their brother. Verse 4 takes this a step further when those thoughts uh, become words and proposed action. Verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? I have a funny uh, side story here and I have Gary's uh, permission to tell this story. Recently, uh, Gary broke his regular glasses and uh, while he was waiting for a new pair to be made, he was wearing his reading glasses and uh, they only focus at the distance um, of a book. Like if you're reading a, a book or your iPad, they only focus there and every other distance they're out of, out of focus. And so it was hard for him to see in certain circumstances. But he did see me uh, trying to cut a loaf of sourdough 
spread that had previously been frozen. It wasn't completely thawed out yet. So I'm struggling with this sharp bread knife and it was really not the safest thing. Um, so Gary gent gently and rightfully scolded me for my in impaired judgment in trying to do this. But then he offered to do it for me. How is this an improvement? The guy who can't see very well is going to now take the sharp bread knife and try to cut this frozen loaf. <laughs> Anyways, back to the log and speck brothers. Jesus calls the one with the uh, unacknowledged log in his eye a hypocrite. Verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is Jesus teaching us about the right use of our judgment in these verses? two things. First, our judgment may be seriously impaired and we have not noticed. How can we take the log out of our eye if we don't even know it's there? How can we address the biases in our judgment if they remain unacknowledged? We need to take the time to listen to the people around us who know us well, who live with us, who work with us, who we serve, or who serve us, and ask them, have you noticed any impairment in my judgment of which I may be unaware? In human resources, there's a thing called a 360 evaluation. There are 360 degrees in a full circle. And a 360 evaluation gives people feedback from all the way around from everyone they work for or they work with or everyone who works for them, everyone they serve or everyone who serves them. That would include their boss and manager and supervisor and coworkers and team members, employees, vendors, clients, patients, etc. What would we learn from a 360 evaluation, not just in our work, but in our life? And what would we do with what we learn? So that's the first thing Jesus teaches in these verses. Our judgment may be seriously impaired and we have not noticed. But second, we have a duty to clear up our own sight so that we can help our neighbor with theirs. You know, Jesus doesn't say, you have a log in your eye, so mind your own business. He says, take the log out of your eye so you can see clearly. See clearly for what? See clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Admitting you may have impaired judgment is not an excuse for checking out. It's just the first step in the lifelong repetitive process of diagnosing your poor judgment, repenting of it, seeking God for good judgment, and by his grace, using it. Using it in the loving service of others. Including 
in the incredibly delicate operation of helping another person remove the speck from their eye so that they too can see more clearly. Our final verse can seem like a non sequitur, but it's not. It's an exhortation to use good judgment. Verse six, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Uh, who are these dogs and pigs that we're not supposed to give holy things to or throw our pearls to? It seems uh, these are terms used to identify bad behaviors exhibited by people that make them untrustworthy, at least for the moment. Friends, you have been entrusted with holy and precious valuables to be shared. And this verse is saying, use good judgment in how and with whom you share them. Um, my earlier story about my boyfriend from so long ago was an example. My hand in marriage is a holy and precious thing that God entrusted to me. Back 30 plus years ago, good judgment dictated that I not give it to one whose behavior, at least at the time, was untrustworthy. Okay, it's time for the Marian Karashuk uh, paraphrase. So first I'm going to read you my paraphrase of verses 3 to 6, and then I'll back up uh, for my paraphrase of verses 1 and 2. So first, uh, paraphrase of verses three to six. Why focus your attention on someone else's eyesight before you've asked the question, how clear is my eyesight? And face the answer, you have significant blind spots. Worse yet, why do you barge ahead to correct another's eyesight when yours is still so compromised? Hypocrite, first investigate and address your own blind spots, and then you will see clearly to help another with theirs. Likewise, with clear sight, look out for the precious things in your charge, avoiding loss of them and injury to yourself. And now backing up uh, for the paraphrase of verses one and two. And remember, uh, throughout the Sermon in the Mount, on the Mount, um, this is Jesus speaking. So with Jesus speaking, verses 1 and 2. Don't usurp my judgment, or I will have to put you back in your place. For in taking upon yourself my authority to judge without my unique qualifications, you bring my judgment upon yourself. As you apply the measuring tape to others in order to condemn them, it begs the question, what ought I to do with you who do not measure up either? What does Jesus do with us who do not measure up? You know, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, none of us measure up. 
the standard for human beings is not ours to set and measure, and measure others against. Who sets the standard? Well, God sets the standard, but not in some arbitrary way, just so that none of us can reach it. God sets the standard in the sense that he is the standard. The standard is to be able to stand before God. I think Logan once described approaching the holy God in our sinful state like approaching the sun. The standard for human beings is the unique sinless perfection of the God-man, Jesus. And apart from what he in his boundless love has done for us, no one could ever meet the standard. Jesus is both the only truly clear-sighted, fully qualified judge who will measure us and our only saving hope when in the final judgment, he does so. I want to conclude with one more story. I used to do prison ministry at the Federal Women's Prison in Cambridge. There was a time when I would be going there every week. And people on the outside would ask me about the women I was meeting on the inside. Two kinds of questions were common. Uh, one kind of question was, what did I think about the women who really shouldn't be there because they weren't that bad and the system had just failed them? And the other kind of question was, what did I think about the really bad ones, the women who were beyond the pale? My answer was the same in both cases. I am not there to be the judge. All the women I met in federal prison had had their day in court and had been sentenced to prison time by a judge and their ongoing progress towards rehabilitation and release were being regularly assessed by the federal parole board. I did not go to hang around with women in jail to second guess the judicial system or the prison system or the parole system. Now, I know what you might be thinking. I went there to bring Jesus, right? Actually, no. Because guess what? The chaplain was always drumming into the heads of all of us volunteers to keep us from getting self-righteous, to, to humble us. He, she always said to us, don't think you are bringing Jesus in here. Jesus was already here before you showed up. No, I went to jail week by week to be among the women there as one who believes the gospel, believes the gospel is true, and shares the gospel knowing that I need Jesus as much as everyone there. My sin may not be against the law of the land, but it is against the law of God. And on judgment day, Jesus will be the righteous judge for me and everyone who has ever lived. But praise God, Jesus will also be the loving, redeeming savior 
for me and everyone who has put their trust in him. Amen.